Now, I realize that it's been a few weeks since we've been in Joshua, so I thought I'd bring you up to speed on where we've been and even a little preview with where we're going. After Moses died, God gave his people a new leader. His name was Joshua, which means the Lord saves. Joshua was going to lead God's people into the special land God had promised to give them. By this time, God's people had been wandering around in that baking desert for 40 years. So you can imagine how sick they were of sand and anything yellow and tents and walking and being hot. And how happy they were to reach the edge of the desert and to see their beautiful new home right there in front of them, all cool and green and lovely. There was only one problem, Jericho. Jericho was a city, but it wasn't just any old city. It was a fortress, and it stopped anyone from getting into the land. The people looked at Jericho. They looked at the big giant scary walls around it. They looked at the tall towering ramparts. They looked at the heavy iron gates bolted shut. They looked at each other. What would they do? No one knew. But God knew. And God told Joshua what to do. But Joshua must have looked surprised because it was a very odd battle plan indeed, as we'll soon find out. Then God, is, God made his people a promise, I will always be with you, and I will never, ever leave you. If you do what I say, your lives in the new land will be happy, and everything will go well. So Joshua gathered his armies together. They had their swords and spears and shields. They were ready to fight. But the plan wasn't about fighting. It was about trusting and doing what God said. Joshua's army went marching, marching, marching around the city day after day after day. They're too scared to fight, the people in Jericho said. But they were wrong. God's people weren't scared. They were waiting, waiting for God to tell them what to do next. On the seventh day, God told his people to march around the city, not once, but seven times. Then God told everyone to make as much noise as they could. Has anyone ever told you to make as much noise as you possibly can? Well, imagine that noise and add 39,999 other people making that noise too, and you get the idea. Ear splitting. And as it turned out, Stone splitting, too, because the huge, strong walls of Jericho just crumbled to the ground as if they were made of sand. Jericho vanished in a great cloud of dust. So it was that God's people entered their new home, and they didn't have to fight to get in. They only had to walk. Joshua said, God has brought you safely here. Now, will you do what he says? Everyone said, we promise. Only God can make your heart happy, Joshua said, so don't pray to pretend gods. No, they said, never. I'm afraid they didn't keep their promise. They didn't do what God said. And many years later, just as God warned them, 
things would go badly for God's people. They would lose their home. Enemies would capture them and take them off as slaves, and God's people would scatter into many different lands. But God's plan was still working. One day he would give his people another leader and another home, but this home no one could ever take from them. So probably you recognize this, especially if you were here Christmas Eve from the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I absolutely love, love, love. It's a kid's Bible, but it's not just for kids, right? I think every family in our church ought to have one and you ought to incorporate it in your personal devotional lives, specifically because of the subtitle. It's the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. The subtitle, Every Story Whispers His Name. Every story whispers His name. And it does a great, great job of showing us how every individual story is ultimately a part of the story. It shows us much like Jesus showed his traveling companions, his walking companions in Luke 24, when he opened up the Scriptures to them and he interpreted to them how everything from the Law and the Prophets was ultimately about him. Our our little kids' Bible here does an amazing job of doing just that, of pointing us to how everything that's here is ultimately about him. It's, it might be a story about crumbling walls, but even that is whispering Jesus' name in our ears. I want to read now the, the more traditional text. Uh, selected verses from Joshua chapter 6. So if you're able, I'd like to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. starting in verse 1 of chapter 6. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up everyone straight before him." Now we're going to skip a few verses and all that we're skipping is Joshua relaying to the people exactly what God had told him and the people obeying and carrying out this plan to the T. Now jump down with me to verse 15. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. 
And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. And the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. This is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. O Lord, indeed, as we have just sung, We have nowhere else to turn but to You. There is no other place to go. Only You have the words of life. And they are words of life because they indeed do show us Christ. And so this morning, even from from a very familiar Old Testament passage, would You... Show us Christ. And in showing us Christ, change our very lives from the inside out. We pray in His name and for His sake. Amen. Please be seated. So as we seek this morning to plug this story of Jericho back into the story, the one that's actually all about Jesus and the one that's actually quite helpful and useful for us today, there's four things for us to do from this passage this morning. Uh, There's an outline in your worship folder if that's helpful. Four things for us to get a hold of with our hearts and with our minds. The same four things that God's people needed to do in approaching Jericho that you and I need to do Today, number one is to believe the promise of God. We've got an interesting combination in these first two verses. Verse one and two seem to be at odds with each other. Verse one, see how tightly shut up the city is. You can't get in or out. Verse two, see how I've given you the city? Well, wait a minute. If it's so tightly shut that you can't get in or out, well, how are we going to get in? What are we going to do? Jericho was, in fact, a very fortified city. If you remember back to chapter 2 and the story of Rahab and the spies, right? she said, you've got to get out quick before they shut the gate. Meaning, once they shut the gate, there's no getting in or out. So 
So how in the world is this seemingly impossible thing going to happen? And I ask you this question, I bring this question up, not so much because I want to discuss the mechanics of this thing and really get into the minutia of the walking and the shouting and the crumbling. Though lots of people really do, right? Lots of people have written lots of things about the mechanics of this and how it happened and the, the seismic effect and, and the, the sonic this and, and the frequencies of their combined shout must have disintegrated. No. That's not where we're going. I want us to back up and get bigger and broader than that. How was it that this thing came to pass? I think the writer to the Hebrews gives us the best, most succinct answer of how this thing happened. And he doesn't mention seismic or sonic or frequency or anything. Hebrews 11, by faith... The people crossed the Red Sea on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she'd given a friendly welcome to the spies. It happened because people believed the promise of God. That's why it happened. That's how it came to pass, even at the very start of of Joshua. If you'll remember back to the very first verses of chapter 1, the promise, I'm giving you the land, now go in and take it. Does it still look somewhat impossible? Yeah. Yeah. Does that matter? No. Certainly not to God. Certainly not to God who has a history of showing up and doing the impossible. Seas crossing, rivers drying up. Got to believe the promise of God. And the promise of God isn't just the land promise reiterated in chapter 1 was also His presence. I'm with you. I am with you and I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. And that's why the impossible can be possible when we believe the promise of God, of a God who always keeps His promises. Number two, we've got to rely on God's presence. There's two interesting things here. We see them both in verse 4. We see the priests, seven of them to be exact, to be specific, and we have again the Ark of the Covenant. And we talked about the Ark already back in, back in chapter 3 in preparing to cross over the Jordan River. We talked about the Ark of the Covenant and what it was. It was this physical symbol, this, this representation, this reminder of God's presence with His people. And so it should be no surprise to us that it's on center stage again here, preparing to enter into the promised land, preparing for the capture of Jericho. But we've also got the priests. The 
these intermediaries, if you will, these go-betweens between God and men. They help folks experience the presence of God, this very thing that's been promised. Part of the promise is His presence, but we need these priests to help us out with that because God's holy and we're not. And so we've got the priests and they, they help broker God's presence, if you will. They say, all right, you need to sacrifice this. You need to cleanse that if you're going to be fit for the presence of God. And the people needed both. The people needed the ark and they needed the priest if in fact they were going to experience and benefit from God's presence. They needed the ark, they needed the priest. Hmm, every story whispers his name. Hmm. They needed the ark, they needed the priest. They needed God's presence. They had to rely on God's presence. Every story whispers His name. Y'all, you've got to put on your glasses when you're reading. right? I, I actually didn't bring mine, and I managed to stumble through the text. Okay, But I'm not talking about those glasses. right? I'm talking about your Jesus glasses. right? As you're reading through the Scriptures, hopefully daily, reading, reading along with our little plan, a chapter a day, Put your Jesus glasses on, especially as we're reading through these portions of the Old Testament. Look for Him. He's there. Listen for Him. Listen for His name being whispered. Jesus is all over this text. Jesus is being whispered in the ark and in the priest because when Jesus comes, He's going to make both obsolete. Once Jesus comes, we no longer need God in a box. We no longer need priests to broker His presence. Because when Jesus comes in the Incarnation, He comes to be present with the people in a way that God has never been present before. And He comes as not only a priest, but our great high priest, and the great high priest who Himself is the once and for all final sacrifice. So there's no more sacrifice this, there's no more cleanse that. Because because of the work of Christ, we've been cleansed and we've been made pure forever. Every story is whispering His name. We've got to rely on His presence. And though the the fleshly, physical presence of Jesus has ascended to the Father's right hand, we all know that He sent and He's left His Spirit, His powerful presence in our lives. We've got to rely on His presence. We've got to believe His promise. We've got to rely on His presence. Thirdly, we need to embrace His process. What a strange way to capture a city. One of the the commentaries that I was reading pointed it out, though you didn't really need to, that among a, a survey of all ancient Near Eastern histories of the captures of cities, 
nothing like this has been seen anywhere else. Duh. And I think the, the way that the little storybook Bible phrased it was right. How surprised they must have been because what a very odd battle plan it was indeed. We're going we're gonna to walk around the city 13 times and we're going to yell. All right. But what, what a brilliant plan it was, as are most of God's plans. Because, of course, in God's plan, it shines a white, hot light on the fact that this is His doing. This is His accomplishment, and not the people's. It's His glory, it's His fame, it's His power. The people participate... But it's clearly God doing the work. And the whole thing comes off much more like a ceremony than a battle. Isn't that weird? Isn't that weird? It's almost more like a worship service than fighting. Right? There's trumpets blasting. Right? Everything in in this little plan begins and ends with a trumpet blast. And then there's the shouting. Huh, shouting. Where, where does that show up in worship? Not here at Trinity Presbyterian. <laughs> but some places it shows up. Right? It's all through the Psalms. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy. Right? That's what this is about. It's worship. That's what they're doing. It's God's glory that's, that's on display, His worth and His praise. Do you remember three weeks ago? No, of course you don't. Um, three weeks ago, the end of chapter 5. It ended really strange. It was so weird. This guy shows up with a sword. Mysterious sword guy shows up. And so Joshua says, All right, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? His answer was, No. He says, I'm the commander of the Lord. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. And so Joshua, very fittingly, then asks him a question. All right, well, commander of the Lord's army, what do you have to tell me? And I am sure that he was expecting a battle plan. I am sure that he was expecting military strategy and steps. And instead he's told, take off your sandals. Take off your sandals for the place that you're standing is holy. And so, of course, Joshua is on his face in worship. You see, the commander of the Lord's army didn't come to give steps for victory. 
He came to obtain worship. And lo and behold, this battle plan, if you even want to call it a battle plan, to capture Jericho looks an awful lot like worship. God's people had to embrace God's process for capturing Jericho. You and I have to embrace God's process today. Now, what do I mean by that? Today, what would it look like for you and I to embrace the Lord's process? Now, this is important. Two common concerns, critiques, requests, if you will, that I hear about preaching, and I know that they're common because other friends who are in ministry hear the very same things. There's two that are very common. One is, your sermons need to be more practical. Right? Your sermons need to tell us what to do. Your sermons need to strengthen our marriages, help us raise our kids, run our businesses. As if to say, all right, my biggest problem, right, the thing that's holding me back from being a faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus, my biggest problem is a lack of knowledge. If I only knew the specific things I needed to do, everything would be okay. So that's, that's the first one. It's pretty common. The second one is this. I need sermons to inspire me. I need to be inspired. I need to be pepped up for the week ahead. Right? Get me fueled up and fired up for Jesus. And I'll be ready to go. As if to say, all right, my biggest problem, the thing that's holding me back, the thing that's keeping me from being a mature disciple of the Lord Jesus is a lack of inspiration. If only I felt inspired, everything would be okay. Friends, it's not a lack of knowledge or inspiration that is our problem. We know what to do. We know what to do. The Lord Jesus made it so simple for us by God's providence. It was even in the Matthew text that we read today. Though I memorized the Mark one, which starts, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And a second command is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Y'all, we know what to do. It's not a lack of knowledge. It's not a lack of inspiration or being pepped up. Our problem is desire. 
Our problem is our want to. Our problem is that we are not, in fact, loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our hearts are divided. That's our problem. We have other lovers. We're worshiping at the altar of a bigger house, of a remodeled kitchen, of a grand vacation, of sports, of family, of comfort, of leisure, of selfishness. You know why I mentioned those things specifically? Because those were my altars this week. Those are the places where I worshipped this week. It's not a lack of knowledge. It's not a lack of inspiration. It's that we allow our hearts to be divided again and again and again. And that's why I don't love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's why I don't love my neighbor as myself. Friends, if if I'm going to be a faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus, if you're going to be faithful disciples and followers of the Lord Jesus, it's not going to come through ten practical steps. It's not going to come from a little pep talk to get you fired up. We've got to embrace the process. We've got to embrace God's process. And when we do, we'll find that it looks a lot more like worship than anything else. It looks a lot more like worship than it does a to-do list. It looks a lot more like worship than it does a battle. See, it's when we're brought back to that holy place and when we're told to take off our shoes, and when we get flat on our face before the Lord, when we're confronted again with His worth and His majesty and His beauty and His power, y'all, that's why Sunday's so important. That's why what we're doing right now is so stinking important. It's so vital that we gather together for worship. That's why God calls us to worship. It's commanded. It's for our own good. And I guess in a real sense, you could call that inspiration if you want to use that language, though it's not the pep talk that I think most folks have in mind. But it is certainly recalibrating. It's reorienting. It's resetting. Where we come together, we worship the one true God, after having battled all week long these cheap imitations. All right, so we're not going to get to this fourth um, blank on the outline in the way that I wanted to. You can fill it in, and I'll mention it as far as it helps us with our, with our third point. Uh, we've got to be humbled by God's prerogative. And so I I want to say more about it at another time because this question that this text raises, but we're going to see it again 
in Joshua. The question that's raised about the killing, right, of men and women and children, right, that's a hard question. We don't need to gloss over it. Some of you struggle with that. How could God be a good and loving God if he commands this to happen? And I know, y'all, our neighbors really are struggling with this, right? So I don't want to gloss over it. I don't want to give it short shrift. But I do want us to consider at least this aspect of it this morning as it relates to our worship, as it relates to God's process. Y'all, we've got to let the fact that God has shown us grace and mercy instead of justice and judgment, we've got to let that humble us deeply and drive us to worship. It's got to drive us to our knees, to our faces, in worship, because in the gospel, right, in the gospel, we're so deeply flawed and sinful and rebellious that the Son of God had to die. The Trinity had to be ripped apart. That's how bad off we were. And yet, we are so loved we are so loved by the father in his son christ jesus that he did it willingly joyfully gladly folks that is a staggering love and that's the kind of love that radically changes and transforms us Being the recipients of love like that changes what we love. That's God's process. It's not a knowledge problem. It's not an inspiration problem. Being loved like we have been loved in the gospel, changes what we love. It changes our want to. It changes our desires. When we see the beauty and the glory of God in and through the gospel, our desire for the cheap imitations slowly begins to fade away. That's God's process. The things of this earth that grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. That's His process. Let's pray. Oh God, if we don't hang on to anything other than that, help us hang on. Hang on to it for us. Drive it deep down into our hearts. Flood our hearts and our minds with the knowledge of the love with which we've been loved so that it will change what we love. So that it will change our very desires, it will change our want-tos, and that will enable us to follow you as a faithful disciple. Oh God, cause it to happen for your glory and for our good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.